in a world full of complex challenges. We need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity. Welcome back to the Chill Podcast. That's C-H-L-L for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We are chill and we are ready for another chill conversation. So this is the second episode in our introductory series. We're excited to tell you more about the generational focus groups that we hosted this past year. Lois, why don't you start by telling our listeners who we spoke with in those groups? Okay. Well, these were our friends and we chose them based on the year that they were born to create cohorts for each of the generational groups. So we had a Gen Z group where we met with four high school students and we met with four millennials and this was our friends ages 25 to 40 and four Gen Xers and four baby boomers. Do, and we, do we have to say baby boomers? <laughs> I hate that. Can we just call ourselves boomers? <laughs> okay, boomer. <laughs> I'm sorry, that feels uncomfortable. I thought that boomers didn't like to be called boomer. Yeah, my kids kind of, boomers, it's almost a curse word sometimes. (laughs) Whatever, boomers. And we met with four members of the greatest generation, people over 80, sometimes known as the silent generation or the post-war generation. Those were our beautiful octogenarians. Yeah, every group was really so fun to meet with. And so Louise, why don't you tell our listeners what we wanted to ask each group? Sure, We wanted to know what these different groups thought about the challenges and opportunities facing education and the world at large, and how their perspectives were similar or different from ours. We wanted to see if the conversations we were having as chill, just the four of us, even mattered to other people. We also wanted to practice and improve our skills for facilitating good conversations. We'd become so used to how the four of us talked to each other every two weeks, and we needed time experiencing exploring what these conversations look and feel like with others. The questions that we asked each group were, one, what are issues or opportunities facing the world today? Two, what are issues and opportunities in education today? Three, how do issues in education and the world intersect? Four, how can people from different generations benefit from each other's wisdom and creativity? And finally, five, we asked them for suggestions about our podcast. So in September 2021, we started with a mixed generational beta group. We had one millennial, a boomer, and a self-described zennial, ex-zennial, named James. And here's what he said. I'm technically a millennial, but... I kind of feel like I fit more in that micro generation that's between millennial and generation X because I was almost an adult when 9-11 happened. I grew up, you know, without the internet, stuff like that, that doesn't quite fit normal millennial. James is a member of our team at the BYU Arts Partnership, and so is Alyssa. She's an elementary educator and arts administrator, and she resonated with our attention to intergenerational connection and communication. 
every generation thinks that they're just so much more progressive and so much better than the next without relying on all of these, you know, amazing skills and, and wealth of experience that they have. But I think a lot of times they tend to feel that way because there's a feeling of the previous generation looking down on the next generation of you don't know anything and you young kids. And, um, and so if there was able to, if we were able to, to get rid of both of those, um, you know, just negative feelings towards one another and resenting one another and, and make that bridge like your student kind of represented, I feel like we just would be able to accomplish so much more um, because they do both have very different perspectives. And I think they're both so valuable and it does feel like there's a lack of um, opportunity to connect there a lot of times. And then Mark, the boomer in the group, a retired professor of dance in Utah, confirmed the idea that education is an essential way to address issues in the world. I can't think of a single issue. Uh, if you look at healthcare, if you look at climate change, if you look at, you know, there, I don't think there's anything that you, that you can't address through education. If children are growing up being more facile in their, their ability to look at the world, their ability to uh, problem solve and identify what issues are, rather than answering questions, that they want to be able to form questions, form good questions and say, what does this mean? And where do I fit inside of that? This group also confirmed how complex issues in the world and education are. Here's a bit where James starts weaving home life and family issues with school issues. One of the big problems that I'm seeing is that families and parents and siblings are not helping each other out as much. And they're expecting the teachers to basically not only do the education portion of things, but also teach them all these life skills and basically raising them. And I realize that that's not, I mean, I realize there's a lot of circumstances where kids don't have a stable home life to come home to. But in general terms, I would just say in my lifetime, I've seen less and less parent involvement and they kind of just put everything on the teachers and expect them to do everything. You know, the empathy that James expressed for teachers is something we found in a lot of our focus groups, but especially in our Gen Z focus group. So that first beta group gave us confidence, right, to go forward set up more focus groups. So we started with Gen Z and this group had a lot to say about being a student in school because that is their current lived experience. And each high school student who participated with us touched on mental health and stress and the expectations made on students and teachers in schools. Let's start with Noah. He's a high school student from Utah and he is here talking about his concerns about mental health. I also have a ginormous issue with falling out and just mental health problems in general. And in public school, it is really a massive issue. You go to school and you can't operate at all. And you see the counselors enough and they just tell you that, will ask you if it can work through it, although you literally can't. It's an issue of more or less, they want you to be within the school and just go through the motions rather than actually taking care of your mental health so i've often had to pretend to be sick just so i can get a mental health day from just to kind of rejuvenate so i can go back to the very exhausting experience that is school 
Angelo, a high school student in Fremont, California, empathized with teachers and uh, the toll that schooling takes on their mental health as well as students. Teachers, they have to go through a bunch of stuff, six different periods. They have to grade almost over 200 papers. They have to make up new assignments. They have to do so much. I, f- I don't think it's their job, but rather maybe more counselors' jobs, more therapist jobs, because teachers, they already have a lot on their plate. So after we met with the Gen Z group in mid-February of 2022, we met with millennials, and these were my peeps. And we joked around about what it means to be a millennial. I think I just, 90s baby has always felt like the, the correct term for me. Just like 95, some kind of like right in the middle. I'm 89, but I feel like, I remember in college, people would say things like, oh, you don't seem like a millennial. And I'm like, so is that a compliment or an insult? Because I'm sort of not quite sure. <laughs> so, yeah, I always joked that I was the last generation to grow up without technology, but the first to really have it as a high schooler. Like I got my pager, my pager got, you know, came to me in ninth grade. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Zennial because I know how to change a tire and I know how to convert a Word document to a portable document format, PDF. So... That makes me as when you can operate between both digital and analog uh, comfortably. So I don't know. 1982, what am I? This group really rallied around the need for intergenerational conversations and talked a lot about their current experiences working with students and teachers inside and outside of schools. These were busy professionals that we got to, to speak with um, one evening. So here's a few clips. We're going to start with Marco Alberto. He's an after-school teacher and community activist in California. Being in the middle is like so important and um, kind of being able to to translate things in ways that, you know, the elders might express something, but it, it needs to be translated and made accessible for younger folks to hear. And um, likewise, young folks will express things that we have to kind of take back up to the elders and so many examples of like, you know, decisions being made on like young people's behalf, but they're they're not at these meetings, they're in school, they're not, even if the best intentions are there, it's like their, their voice isn't being heard. We need to have those responsibilities and I think feel the responsibility of like, I need to properly, I need to A, listen and really hear out the elders and hear out our young folks, but also like, represent them when they're not at the table. And here's Amy Lane Crow, an instructional coach and secondary educator from Arizona. I have a 12-year-old son and he asks tons of questions all the time. But in my high school, the students are so afraid of like the critical race theory and the SEL and what's acceptable to ask and understand and what's not. And I think there's just such gray areas there Um, what some people feel is acceptable versus others. And so, um, you know, I I see that within our our school district and our school and our teenagers and just kind of how we grew up. So I guess that that's in a nutshell, a lack of understanding of perspectives and impossible fear to ask those questions. And here's Charity Hall, a financial advisor in California. Yes, we absolutely like the intergenerational flow is it's vital. Um, I think historically we can look at history throughout all times. We can look at the successful civilizations and it's because that generational construct is there. Um, but what does that collaboration look like? What does that push pull interactions look like? Are we listening to our students? Are we listening, you know, 
in the classrooms from from every age, whether that's master's programs, whether it's kindergarten, whether it's after school programs, like how are we applying the information that we're learning if we are listening and how are we collaborating or allowing them to teach us as educators um, things as well. And here's our last millennial, Matthew Teeter, um, or maybe he's the Zennial, but he's a principal from Utah. And this is what he had to say about ageism. I always wonder if we, uh, you know, treated ageism like we do racism and sexism, if we get a lot farther. Um, Cause I know that's a, it's a real ism, you know, and uh, whether people are, uh, you know, biased against children or biased against older adults or somewhere in between the, uh, the isms are real, the stereotyping, the discrimination um, is real. And, and so to just understand that ageism is a real issue and uh, as, as hard as some of us or hopefully most of us work on uh, getting rid of any kind of racism or, or sexism or other, you know, um, homophobia, any of those things to get to, to rid ourselves of, of uh, our ageist tendencies. But for whatever reason, they become, you know, more so they've, they're more socially acceptable. I think the cliche boomer, you know, like that's, is that really okay? You know, so I think those are some important things to interrogate. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's already been articulated the importance of, of finding uh, meaningful information that tends to be, um, you know, held maybe in a particular age span. I think is important to discover and, and appreciate and, and look on with wonder and curiosity. Louise, why don't you tell our listeners about the Gen Xers? That's who we met with next. Yes. Well, the Gen Xers jumped right into the urgent and complex issues in the world that most concerned them. They were really going deep into big ideas. Keeley Song, a choreographer and dance professor from Utah, spoke about the dramatic transitions that need to be made. I think some urgent um, pressing issues of our time really is the environment. So um, how do we help us move along as a society for a radical ecological conversion within ourselves and within our hearts? And I know for me, the process and the journey has been a little slow. And I know sometimes I'm not the best at things, but I'm trying and I'm trying to speak out. There's this ever battle between trying to um, work with the uh, expanding population like how do we make enough room so housing is affordable uh, at the same time though what resources are we using up so I think that's a critical juncture a point I think that can only really be solved with um, arts and with science coming together. Arzu Mistry, a community-based artist from Bangalore India currently studying for her doctorate at Columbia University built on Keeley's ideas. I agree that uh, we really have to look at the dynamics of climate change and ecological collapse. Uh, That's definitely one of the big issues. I think the other one is uh, the need to engage deeply with difference and the whole tensions around diversity and inclusion of all kind that are across the world. Um, I think connected to both Uh, are a challenge to a Western extractive capitalist mode of the way of the only way the world works and kind of looking at alternatives. I really um, struggle with how we've severed the connections between nature and culture, between 
ecology and sociology between science and and the humanities i think that that split um and and the lack of the interconnect has really kind of led us to this point um education that makes that does not make interconnections visible Derek Fenner, an artist and scholar in the juvenile and racial incarceration system from South Carolina, spoke to the systemic issues of white supremacy. Um, I think white racial literacy is something that is holding this country back because we do not have white racial literacy. Um, and it is, it is really the root of many of, of the things that we've been dealing with since uh, before this nation even began as, as the diaspora sort of brought what, what has happened here. And I think we've got to start creating shared stories across these intergenerational lines. And not only that, because that's transformative, but we have to create action around those shared stories um, because that's where revolutions happen is when you can create action around those shared stories. And so for me, it's, it's all possible um, and it might be too late, um, but there's no reason not to push forward with, with radically changing the way we're doing things because it's, it's clearly not working and hasn't been working for a long time. Mickey Zabello, a musician and a contractor from Boston, spoke to the divisive nature of our public discourse and how that further complicates our ability to agree on what any of the important issues actually are. It feels to me harder than ever in my lifetime to to even agree on what the facts are anymore because of the way, you know, the way that uh, the internet and social media being used to, 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 as propaganda. And I know this has been with humankind forever, but it feels like it's at a whole nother level now. The boomers were really concerned with social equity in schools and with listening across all sorts of boundaries. Here's what Jerry Kelly, a retired financial executive from Boston, had to say. I was fortunate enough to have a very successful career in finance. My children were fortunate enough to attend high quality independent schools. It's a very different experience than somebody who lives in Fort Smith, Arkansas, or uh, Eastern Montana, or inner city Boston. How do we deliver quality across the spectrum? How do we provide funding that's not self-perpetuating. If you live in, you know, um, Wellesley, Massachusetts, the funding is going to be much higher because it's at the local level than it will be in Adams, Massachusetts. You know, if the real estate tax revenue is so much higher in a Weston, they're going to be able to invest much more into their schools and deliver a better product to those who are motivated to take it. That's not the case in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It's not the case in, oh, rural Mississippi or, 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 or Alabama. You know, my concern is how do we provide equal opportunity to all students without regard to their economic um, status. The boomers were also concerned with how stressful schools are. Here's Jim Reese, who leads a network for public school educators in Washington, D.C. Um, the burnout rate is, um, is very real. 
the exhaustion. I've, I've talked to a number of, of really, really wonderful principals who run highly functioning schools in uh, inner city DC. And they said it's the toughest year, much tougher than 2021 and much tougher than 1920. This year is the toughest they've experienced yet. Every day brings in huge mental health crises on the part of the kids, the families they're coming from and the teachers. And then there's the physical health crises that are multiplying. So it's just every day they're, they're putting out fires and they can't get to any really substantive teaching and learning. That, that is just really, really sad for our country. The boomers were boldly realistic, let's say, about how dire our challenges are. Here's my brother, Paul Hetland, a retired teacher, lawyer, and union leader. The overridingly important uh, issue is uh, climate catastrophe. It, it seems to me that everything right now pales to that if humanity survives it it'll be something of a miracle. So if that is to be done, and it has to be done, we have to find a way. That's different from what we're doing. But they also pushed to keep hope alive. Don't say we're doomed. It's too depressing. That was Ellen Winner, a retired developmental psychologist from Boston College. I'd like to talk about the focus group from the greatest generations. So much experience and wisdom was found in that group. They focus on supporting and guiding the generations who, who are now doing the heavy lifting, and they stress gentleness, love, and hope. Now let's hear from Stephanie Tolan, a children's book author and expert in gifted education, and Rafael Jesus Gonzalez, a poet and university professor in Oakland, California. Right now, what we need more than anything is to find a way to have hope. And to, instead of focusing always on the problems and the awfulness and the terror and the destructiveness, we need to find those moments of hope and focus on those and say, okay, let's, you know, it's like a little teeny flame, you blow on it a little bit um, and, you, and you try to increase it a little bit. And that's what I'd, I'd like to see is looking for the people that say, here's something that's working right here. It's real small but it could maybe get a little better. Raphael advocates for the importance of generations connecting to each other. Always, always there has been the influence of generations into generations. Grandmother spending time with her grandchildren, mother spending time with her children and things. Again, is that capitalism, we say women don't spend time with their with their children anymore. They're liberated to go work. A lot of that is not liberation of the people that I know. The women are forced to go to work just to pay the rent of the thing. It's not because they want to go to work, you know? They want to spend time with their children. And so, and the men want to spend time with their children as fathers too. Uh, we don't have parental leave. Uh, we don't, uh, we talk about family values. The family is, is this, is, is not valued. This group also includes Steve Baugh, retired university professor and superintendent of schools in Utah County, and Nina Serrano, radio host, filmmaker, and author living in Vallejo, California. We have... I think considerable impact with 
with administrators, with principals, with superintendents, with with university professors that that have a great deal to do with what happens in public education, those math professors, science professors, those art professors and so forth. If, if, we, if we could help the university professors, the public school administrators that are produced and teachers to provide a nurturing pedagogy, access to knowledge, stewardship re- responsibility, that could go, I think, a long way towards changing a system. Nina summed up the big picture from her perspective. I think that we have to have kindness, loving kindness as the basis of our education so that we can have nurturing classrooms and that the arts, the training in the arts is one of the best ways for that because it gives people the freedom to explore their creativity. And there's a lot of joy in creativity and a lot of collectivity in creativity. Hmm. Well, I hope that gives you listeners a little ride through the journey we've had over the past year. There is so much more that we could share about these conversations. Hours of recording and pages and pages of transcripts. But what do you think, Chill? What are the similarities and differences that we did experience among the conversations in these groups? It seemed like all the groups shared similar topics of concern, but their approaches differed depending on where they are in their lives. So the Gen Zers, they seemed like really direct about what was happening to them. And the millennials were in the thick of doing work and things, and they seemed more action-oriented and practical. The Gen Xers seemed to think more systematically about the issues, and they used a lot of theoretical perspectives. And then the Boomers, well, they were pretty philosophical. And the greatest generation, they focused with a deep sense of compassion on the basics of hope and love and kindness. So there were different flavors, but I thought they were all the same concerns. Yeah. As you're summing up, what the the similarities and differences I feel like I I need to say we're not saying all millennials feel this way or all boomers are philosophical or you know we're not making generalizations we're attending to what we experienced this past year with these individual people and these are individual voices and how we're making meaning together about them they all responded to the same questions they did yeah and everyone spoke so sincerely you know high school kids were really ready to share their ideas in very open and honest ways. And millennials and Gen Xers who are working so hard had so much to say about the the everyday and what it feels like living and working in the world. And then boomers kind of had that perspective where they were being much more philosophical, as Lois was saying. And then that that beautiful generosity of the octogenarians and the greatest generation who just, you know, I felt like we could all just sink into their wisdom forever because they created such a spacious, simple, honest, accessible place for for everyone we talked to. You know what I loved about the Gen Zers was like how, I don't know, they sort of sat up straighter and 
they grew a foot because we'd asked them their opinion and then they told us and they just seemed so proud of being able to to be listened to seriously I think, I, I think that's a real problem I agree with Lois's perception that those Gen Zers they were almost surprised to be asked their opinion like they're so used to being in school and being told things that they yeah. They couldn't believe we asked their opinion and their insights, yeah. and it was fun to watch that. And they really rose to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what's next? Well, what's next? Our next episode is going to center on what we've learned from these conversations. Not just what came up in them, but what we know now that we've witnessed, analyzed, and had an opportunity to sort of synthesize all the conversations and how they have Um, come together for more understanding. Lots more that we need to get into. We're super excited about it. So thank you for joining us on the Chill Podcast. We'll chill again soon. The Chill Podcast is produced by the BYU Arts Partnership. Special thanks to James Houston for editing, Tavin Barrowman for the artwork, and Scott Fox for the music. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. This helps tremendously as we work to bring more people to our chill conversations. You can find the show notes and more about chill at thechillpodcast.com or on social media. Our handle is at thechillpodcast. And that's chill, C-H-L-L, for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We can't wait to chill with you next time.